Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. This week, we're joined by 13-year NBA vet, Donald Foyle. Let's get it. Hey, it's JJ Reddick. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good and it performs well too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, and working out. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code JJ. It's easy shopping, great customer service. They're good looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. That's MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code JJ and get 20% off. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick, powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, JJ Reddick. All right, welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I've got a great episode for you today. I'm talking with my good friend, former teammate, Donald Foyle. We're going to be talking about athletes and finances. Before we get to that, I just wanted to say I'm bummed that Duke lost. Uh, I'm recording this on Friday. Duke lost last night to Oregon. Wasn't able to watch the game. Was kind of checking during halftime and when I was on the bench during the game to see the score up on the uh, the Jumbotron as it panned through the, the score. So a little disappointed. Although last night was a decent night for me and the Clippers. We had lost three in a row. We got a big win last night. We made some big shots and big plays down the stretch. And I hit my first uh, buzzer beater in the NBA. I'd hit a few kind of game winners, game tying shots to send to overtime, you know, with eight seconds left, 20 seconds left, 40 seconds left, whatever, Uh, but had never hit a game-winning buzzer beater before last night. I didn't even know how to really react. It was kind of awkward. I didn't know if I should jump up and down. I was really just happy that we won, to be honest with you. Chris made just an unbelievable pass. He was getting guarded by Mason Plumlee and somehow fit the ball underneath the guy's legs uh, right to me in stride, and, and I was able to to hit the shot, but it was a pretty awesome feeling. I'm not going to lie. I, I don't know how to describe it because it was almost surreal. I felt like there was like this weird moment after I made the shot and I was like, ah, how should I act right now? Uh, should I be super excited? Should I high five fans? I think I did miss one guy's high five. Ultimately, I think I chest bumped CP and, and Austin sprinted across the court and into my arms. Um, but it was, a, it was a great moment. And, yeah, I've been a part of teammates hitting buzzer beaters and been happy for them. So it was cool, man. It, it was it was a really, really cool feeling to hit that shot. All right, moving on. Let's get to this week's guest. 
We're going to do something a little bit different today. My guest today is another one of my former teammates, but one of the smartest guys that I've ever been around the NBA. And we're going to talk about athletes and their finances. Today, we're joined by 13-year NBA veteran and my former teammate in Orlando, Adonal Foyle. Adonal, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, man. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So you and I were teammates for almost two full seasons in Orlando. We ended up, by chance, sitting next to each other in 2007 during the preseason on the flight from Orlando to China. And it was because of that flight that we struck up a friendship. And it was fascinating to me because I would be reading a book or watching a DVD. At the time, there was no streaming, so we watched DVDs back then. But And you would be working on your budget. You'd be working on your taxes. You'd be filling out Excel spreadsheets. I was fascinated by it. And it was really the first time that my intellectual curiosity and, and kind of my ownership of my own finances began. So I have to credit you for that. W- when did that start for you? Was that something, obviously you were very well educated, you came out of Colgate, great head on your shoulders. Was that an immediate thing when you were a rookie or did that develop over time? Just kind of that ownership of your finances and, and taking control of that? I think for me, partly, it was uh, not really knowing what was going on. I was so frustrated. I think part of the curiosity of you know, going to school and trying to figure out, I mean, let's face it, none of us, when we get to be an NBA player, knows what it means and what it's like to be an NBA player. So I was always worried because things were happening so fast. Like we were, we were on the road all the time. We, uh, we had... We have to pay taxes in all these different states. And I just felt like I was always behind. Um, I, I felt like I didn't know what was going on. And for me, when I feel like a fish out of water, I get very focused and trying to understand and control as much of the process as I can. So that's one of the things that, for me, was the pursuit of trying to figure out how do I control this? I mean, I went from having probably $250 in my checking account uh, coming out of college to put... You had that have, much? It, it, I, it was, uh, you know, I had about $20. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so you go from 250 to like that. So I think for me, it was just like trying to get control over the situation and trying to understand, you know, what was going on. You, you bring up a great point. I mean, most of us, when we're in college don't have a lot of cash. I mean, there were moments when I was in college where, you know, we'd go to the 7-Eleven and I would try to get $20 out of my checking account and I would have $17 in there and and couldn't withdraw cash. So I had to go buy a pack of gum and do the, uh, you know, $5 cash back thing at the register. And then all of a sudden you're drafted, you maybe get your rookie bonus or your first rookie check comes in. Maybe you sign some endorsement deals, you know, prior to the season. But all of a sudden, you've got several hundred thousand dollars in your checking account, and there's really no way to prepare for that. And most of us, when we get drafted, are either in our early 20s or, or still teenagers, and our families really haven't handled money like that before. So how important is it, do you think, to find a good financial person right away? I think a lot of guys maybe tend to trust the people around them that they grew up with. You know whether that's right or wrong. I'm not judging, but that's just the nature of of, of who we are as players. We we tend to trust the people that we grew up with and, and don't want to let new people in. But 
I think it's pretty damn important that that money right away, you get in the habit of taking care of that money and being responsible with that money. Yeah, I mean, for me, initially, I uh, my first uh, paycheck, I wasn't prepared for what to expect between June, you know, twenty fifth and signing. So I, I got drafted. I came out to um, to the Bay Area. I met with the with the Warriors, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, we love to have you. Now we we'll see you around. You know, we we'll see you in September." And this is June, and I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, what am I going to do between now and the start of the season?" And I remember going back home and asking my parents for a loan and my dad being like a you know wiseacre says you know so what kind of interest rate we're going to have you know what kind of return on investment we're going to have and it was just that constant you know uh, conversation i had with my uh, folks my step parents you know were colgate professors and uh, so they came out and spent uh, about a year helping me find a, an apartment in the bay area helping me you know get a car helping me get some clothes i mean there's so many things you have to get used to when you come into the league because for me I had one suit coming out of college. I had one pair of sho- uh, dress shoes. I had no car. I had no uh, place to stay. I had no furniture. So everything you could imagine, you know, that first uh, few months, you're trying to figure out, you know, what things look like. So for me, after that was done, I eventually got, you know, my contract signed, and you f- uh, you get a bonus uh, if you're lucky. If some team give it to you, some team doesn't. Otherwise, you have to wait until November 15 to get paid, <laughs> which is your right. first paycheck. So right. you know, between that, I remember one of the conversations we had was, how do you create a team? You know, it was uh, talking about creating a team around you, uh, not just your CPA, not just your financial consultant, you know, but people that are going to help build your wealth and build, uh, you know, the, having that kind of uh, construction base around you where there's people there, if I'm a lawyer, uh, that can help you to build up what will be your financial team. And, it, and it's not a very easy decision because, as you said, you know, we first instinct is to go with the people that we've grown up with. But I started asking other question was like, well, do they have the infrastructure behind them? You know, how many, how much more money do they have? How many other clients do they have besides me? What happens if things don't go right? So I think just really start being curious is is the first thing that any person could be in this situation is to be curious and to just be vigilant. Yeah, you brought up somebody from the past or whatever, or, you know, somebody that maybe you know. For me, it was a family friend that I initially was with as my financial advisor. So, you know, it was that instinct right away to to start with someone you know. And then the second thing you just talked about was just the, the intellectual curiosity and just learning to ask questions, learning to ask the right questions. And we're going to get more into what you called the team and having the right team around it. So I, I want to just kind of reiterate what you just said. So for most guys that when they get drafted, let's say you get drafted at the end of June, you may not get a paycheck till November. So for a lot of guys, you you actually start in debt because you know your situation wasn't unique. A lot of guys have to go find an apartment in a city, have to go find a car, maybe have to get clothes because of the uh, the dress code, and all that has to be done before they ever get their first paycheck. So a lot of guys will take out loans either from a bank or from their agents, maybe a family friend. So it is interesting that it happens. Let's talk a little bit about the actual contract and how NBA contracts work. So let's assume you're a rookie and you sign for a million dollars. And as a rookie coming out of college, whether 
you're Duke educated, a Colgate educated, or you, you spent one year at, you know, another school, like you really have no grasp of what that $1 million is. I, I remember when I got my rookie signing bonus in late August after getting drafted, I didn't even know that they took taxes out. I, I thought my rookie bonus was going to be $200,000 and, you know, I, I, I gets deposited in my account and I'm expecting $200,000 and it was, you know, $115,000 or whatever it was after they took out taxes. It was, it was a shock to the system. So there's that part of it. And then talk a little bit about all the other expenses that go into, you know, a typical pay period in the NBA. Right. And, and this is the biggest fallacy because, and, and this is, I think, one of the injustices that is done to players because when you see in the newspaper that a player signed for a million dollars, everybody, the families, friends, and everybody in the inner circle thinks that the player now has a million dollars. And right. that could not be further from the truth because we have a very progressive tax system in the United States. So, you know, the more money you earn and the more taxes you pay. But what is unique about professional athlete is that we have what we call in this country a jock tax. So imagine that you live in Florida where there is no state income tax, and then you uh, literally plays basketball all over the country. What they don't tell you is that in each of these states uh, that you go and play basketball and you have to pay taxes. It's called the jack tax. So you go to uh, you live in Florida, you go to California, you pay taxes. You go to New York, you pay taxes. You go to Indiana, Texas, and, and so on. So that there is this constant awareness because. Whether or not you know it is that these things are happening automatically. Then you have your federal tax. And, uh, and then there's some instances where there's municipality taxes where you're paying taxes because you practice in an area um, in some municipality. So, there, there is, so that's the first thing. And then you have your agent fees that comes out of that initial contract. Because if you hire an agent versus a lawyer, you might be paying as much as 4% of that. Uh, Most, so, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Donald, but yeah, I just yeah, yeah. want to be clear. If you're drafted in the first round as a rookie, you do not pay your agent any fee. And that's because the rookie scale exists. So agents don't charge on that. Some second round picks will pay 3 to 4%, as you were saying, on their rookie deals. And then for any non-rookie contract, you know, the going rate is going to be that 3 or 4%. So on your second, third, fourth deals, whatever it may be. But just to be clear, your rookies drafted in the first round because of the rookie scale are not paying that three or four percent. Right, and and this has been a change. So you know, from when we came in in '97, uh, this has been one of the changes that has taken place. But part of the the conversation that you're having as well is that most guys who hire agents sometimes the agent will waive that initial fee as well because they will hope that, you know, with this initial contract, that that agent will be, you'll be somehow indebted to that agent over the long period of time, so they can take a percentage. But most guys don't even know, for example, that you can negotiate between, you know, that 4%, whatever it is, at any time, you can negotiate that down. So, but that there is sometimes a cost that is associated with your agent. You can also potentially, you know, borrow a loan from him um, during that uh, what I call a gray period between being drafted and your, your first uh, and your first uh, paycheck in uh, in November. So there is some fees that is associated with that, and it's different, obviously, for for everyone. 
So, the, you know, so there's that. So then you basically are probably closer to 40, 45% of your income potentially is, is gone um, before you even see your paycheck. Right. Hey, Donald, I still have a few more questions for you, and we're going to get to the four on four in a little bit. But I wanted to ask my listeners, have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it super complicated, and they all try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell tickets to your favorite NBA team. SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to look for tickets to a game. SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. Plus, my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how to get your $20 rebate on tickets. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Enter promo code JJ, that's my name. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. All right, moving on. So we've got our federal tax. We've got our state taxes where you pay taxes, a, a kind of a duty tax, a jock tax, whatever you want to call it, in every state that you play. Let's just say, like my situation and your situation for a number of years, let's just say you play in California. You're also going to pay a state tax there, and that's 13.3%, I think, if you make over a million dollars in the state of California. We have really nice roads, though. Really nice roads. <laughs> and it's great parks. And I love taxes. When, you, when, the, when the alarm goes off. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're great schools. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, then you've got your 3 or 4% you're paying your agent. Okay, and then there's something called an escrow tax. So because our collective bargaining agreement is negotiated with the owners and there's a revenue split to ensure that the owners don't overpay us, they withhold 10% of our total income during the season. So for your 12 checks from November 15th to May 1st, 10% of your total money is withheld from your checks. So your checks during your season are always going to be a little bit smaller than your checks during the off season. So for a given pay period, if you live in the state of California and it's the season, generally speaking, I probably get 35 to 39% of my money during a two-week pay period because of the state tax, the state taxes that we play, the 10% escrow tax, and the federal tax, and then all your other little you know, Medicaid, Medicare, all that stuff. So a million dollars, let's say at the end of the season is more like $400,000. Now, in some years, as you know, you get your escrow money back. You may get a portion of it back. I think in my nine years, I think two or three times we've gotten all 10% back, meaning you know the owners didn't overpay us. The revenue was, was split equally as it should be. There's been a couple years where we haven't gotten anything back. And then there's other years where you get a portion of that 10% back. You might get 3.5%, 6.5%, somewhere around there. So there's all these you know, different fees, taxes, escrow. So as you said, most people say, oh, if the guy signed for a million dollars, he's got a million dollars. It's much closer 
to let's say 400-ish, 500-ish, depending on obviously the state you play. If you play in Florida, you're not paying any you know, state income tax on your contract, just the taxes you pay in the state you go to. So once you have your money, you then have to figure out how to spend it and how to invest it. There's obviously a lot of people that maybe will be calling you, asking for money, asking for loans. Uh, what was your experience with friends, family coming to you and asking you for money? So I just want to follow up on the, on the last part also. Sure. And to be sure, you know, we were saying a million dollars and we wanted to make 400000 I think for a lot of people out there, they're not going to understand that. So I have to say, you know, look. No one's um, complaining, by the way. I'm no not. I'm certainly. Not I'm certainly not complaining about, about my salary. Not at all. I feel very fortunate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm saying this more matter of factly. This is not. Right. This is so people can kind of understand exactly right. how our contracts work. This is not. I'm by no means complaining. Listen, I believe in paying taxes. I'm fine right. with that. You know, I'm totally fine. If my agent does a good job and works for me, I'm fine paying that three percent. I get it. It's all good. Yeah, so I think that so I wanted to just make that for like so somebody comes into this conversation that we're not complaining, right. we're just trying to explain um, you know the way things work. So for me, um, uh, one of the things that was uh, very apparent from the start is that how messed up the system is. So I remember I started interviewing some financial institutions about you know saving, uh, potentially creating a saving goal. And one of the things that was so distressing is that I w- I'm not going to say the name of the, uh, the firm, but I went to them talking about how do I, you know, start this process. I think I had uh, $10,000 at the time. And I was like, you know, I want to start right now. It's my first year, but I want to get into the habit of doing it. And uh, the guy on the other line, I think he thought it was a really funny thing because he was like, yeah, you know, we really don't take on a client until you have $5 million. And I was like, so you're telling me that I have a contract now for the next three years or so, and you're telling me that you're not interested in helping me to figure this out until I get to $5 million? He's like, yeah, you know, our threshold is as we start taking clients on at $5 million. And I remember just thinking, this is insane. So you're basically telling me that somebody have to save somewhere between, you know, five and five and a half million dollars for you to even consider me as a client. Uh, that was one of the threshold at the time. So part of the first thing you have to do is you have to sit down and try to find someone that has your values. And what I mean by that is not that I know more than this financial person, but someone who understands that we have a very short career, that the life expectancy of an athlete is somewhere, especially for basketball, between three and five years. And, you know, the big question for me is that if my career over, you know, got, was finished in five years, like, where would I be? Could we save enough money where I could at least have something at the end of my, uh, my five years? Could I, have, could I save enough money where I can probably pay my mortgage without being on the street? I mean, those are the kind of the really bare-bone conversation. The first conversation you should be having is, what is your philosophy about saving? What is your philosophy about, you know, the professional athlete that has this very limited window to make a tremendous amount of money and then have the rest of your life to kind of live and take care of that? And those were some of the conversations I had. Some people were talking about, you know, being more aggressive. And I always believe that my financial person had to be, um, you know, moderate. They have to really uh, pay attention attention and really make sure that uh, I was uh, that my 
portfolio was about preservation of capital rather than being aggressive and trying to, uh, you know, to beat the market and do all this sort of stuff. I wanted somebody who's going to be conservative. So that was the first kind of calculation. So a couple of things on, on what you just said. I had a similar experience as you at the end of my fourth year, at the end of my rookie contract, I was getting ready to be a free agent and I decided that I was going to go in a different direction with my financial advisor. So I interviewed a bunch of you know, private banks, so the private wealth management teams at a, at a few banks. And again, there are thresholds. My experience was a little different, though, because they were willing to take me on, even though I hadn't reached those thresholds based on, you know, presuming that I was going to get another contract. Uh, the second thing is, you know, as you said, we we had these short careers. So we're, we're looking at three to five years. I think the average career in the NBA is a little under five years. They say the average salary is, is a little under $5 million, but that's kind of misleading. The median salary is actually closer to two and a half, two point seven. So you're looking at, you know, maybe if you're lucky to play an average career, you're, you're going to make, let's say, $10 million. You've got to figure out a way to not only preserve that capital, but have that capital essentially spout off income because you may be done in your late 20s, early 30s, whatever it may be, and you've got to figure out a way to make that money last and also for a lot of us make that you know money essentially your income for the next 10 20 years i think that's hard i I don't know another profession where at 30 or 35 they tell you hey you can't do this anymore you're a genius but donald like you're a genius at basketball but you can't play anymore i'm sorry you're gonna have to go home you know that nobody's telling like a guy that works on wall street at 32 like can't do it. Figure something out to do for the next 30 years. No one's telling a lawyer or a doctor at 35. It's a little backwards. And so I think that's the challenge. I think a lot of guys, when they're making investments, they're trying to to swing for the fences and hit home runs. Maybe they're trying to invest in you know their family's businesses or maybe their great friend has an, a business idea and they want to invest in that stuff. But I, I think the route to take really is is what you said, and and to look for a moderate risk portfolio, a mixture of equities and fixed income, to be with, I believe this wholeheartedly, I think professional athletes should be with a private wealth management team, with a bank, because of the regulation, because of the transparency, uh, with every single transaction, every single decision. Um, There's entirely too many guys that are with a quote-unquote financial guy, and they give them power of attorney. I've talked to teammates that literally have no idea how to even access their accounts. It's mind-blowing to me. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I've had, you know, we have seen many, many players. That's one of the, the big areas where a guy hand over power of attorney, you know, not sometimes just a simple power of attorney, but like an unlimited power of attorney with it, um, that, that person have uh, decision-making power over investment strategies, buying a house, buying a car, taking care of family without any any really oversee. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've been trying to really stress a lot is this idea of this, uh, this mentor concept, is that if you can have somebody who has no vested interest in, uh, in the business dealing to sit on your board with your real estate lawyer, your CPA, your financial consultant, your legal team. If you can have somebody on that board who just there to be a pain in the butt, who's just there, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This makes sense, you know, and really trying to get guys to be involved in at least taking a meeting once a month about 
the future, you know, where are we, how are things going, what is, uh, how much are we towards a tax-free goal, um, you know, your tax-free goal could move, I, mean, I remember my, my first year in the league, my tax-free goal, I think, was like $5,000 a year. If I can get to that, you know, that would be a good thing. And then it, it went to a, another number. But if you, if you can have a strategy and start having conversation about that and being involved and understanding that it's okay to not know everything. I, that was the hardest yeah. thing for an athlete that is, you know, we're brilliant in the code. And then we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't really know what these guys are doing with our money. And part of the process is to ask questions and to be uh, just a pain about asking questions, not feeling guilty about it, realizing your financial team wouldn't, cannot even begin to go through an NBA season. They can't dunk. <laughs> so they might be brilliant in this space, but it doesn't make you an idiot just because you don't know. It just makes you inexperienced. And I think you have to change the conversation in that, in that instant. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. It is about finding the right team of people that you can trust, but it's also about eventually kind of taking ownership of your finances. And I want to kind of segue this into your book. So you wrote a book called Winning the Money Game, and it really focuses on kind of the stuff we're talking about, the financial pitfalls of athletes why so many athletes go broke, the the percentages of athletes that are broke or in financial distress, I hate the word broke, but financial distress uh, after they're done playing is staggering. And, you know, a lot of your book focuses on reversing that cycle. So let's just kind of break it down. You find a team, you get that team, your team has a CPA, a team of financial advisors. You're saying that your team should have an overseer with a non-vested interest that's not collecting commission or collecting a fee or anything just to kind of make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. And then what do you think is that that next step for an athlete? It's not really having conversation about, you know, if you were to retire, I I try to get guys to really focus on the contract that they have and to not focus beyond that contract. Whatever contract you have when you sign, you know, with you, when you sign up your team, don't look beyond that contract because that is not guaranteed. So really start having conversation is, if my career ended at the end of this contract, where are we? How much could I save right. in order for, to be in a position to, say, have some money, you know, for the rest of my life? Maybe it's $5,000. It doesn't have to be big, but you have to start that initial conversation with that initial contract and nothing beyond that. So when you sign the next contract, then you kind of can increase those, uh, you know, those, those goals that you have. But it's really about having that initial conversation. And then it's um, everybody being on the same page about, uh, you know, you're going to have an audit. So one of the things you want to put on the table from the very onset is that everyone will be audited every year. That's just going to be part of what, how I conduct my business. And the other thing is, is that, and it's very important, is that that mentor slash non-vested person has to be there to start asking questions that you forget to ask or you don't know to ask and should be modeling for you uh, as though he doesn't understand or he or she doesn't understand. So why are we doing this? What is the risk-reward? Start really teaching and modeling for that athlete how to ask questions. I think one of the hardest things for us is that 
to really seem like we are ignorant, you know, having that kind of, well, you don't really know what's going on. We have to be okay with that for the first few months. Is that it's not easy, but this is your life. You have to be invested, and you have to risk being a little bit feeling uncomfortable that you don't really know what's going on. And those two things are very important initially. I, I love what you just said about kind of guys understanding that the contract they're currently on is really all you should assume that you have. Someone told me that very early in my career, and and I've made all my financial goals based on that assumption. My financial goals right now are based on the assumption that after next year, I won't have another contract. I mean, I would like to. I would like to continue to play. Hopefully, I have another contract. But I'm not banking on the fact that I'm going to get another three- or four-year deal after next year. You know, so my financial goals, the money that I spend, those habits, my financial picture is all based on my current contract. And like you said, as you move further along in your career and where you are in your contract or your next contract or what you're being paid, your financial picture, your financial goals, your lifestyle changes. And so I think for me, it's you get your team you recognize that simple fact, this is the contract that I'm on, you make your goals based on that contract, and then you try to figure out a way to cover your lifestyle. Because we we can talk all we want about investing and saving, but if you're spending more than you're investing and saving, the money's not going to last. That's an unfortunate reality. So if you get to the end of your career and you've only saved three or $4 million dollars, and you're spending a million to $2 million a year, you're either going to have to significantly cut back your lifestyle or you're going to be in financial distress in two or three years. Right. I mean, one of the questions that I always ask uh, guys and I, when I talk to them, I was like, so how much did you spend on coffee, right? It seems like a very silly question. Or how much did you give to your mom? Or how much did you give to your sister? And it's not a question to embarrass you know, the, the, the other person, but it's always a question to make you think, right? If you don't really know what's going on, I think for you and I, we can say with certainty there's a lot of guys who spend, but they don't know like what they spend their money on at any given point in their career, right? It's like they know they buy like a car, they know they buy a house, but they don't know how much they spend, how much they give their boy, because some of it is cash. So you give your boy $50, he give you your mom $1,000. I'm not saying that any of those things is a, moral, is a moral test. The question is, part of why we get into so much trouble, because we can't really look and say, I spend uh, $500 or $2,000 a year on coffee. If you can't really start having this conversation, then you really don't know like what's happening in your finances, right? If you can't start asking the question, how much do you spend in clothes? Then you really can't ask the question like, how much should you reduce your clothing allowance? Or how much you right. should you reduce your, your brother's allowance if you're giving them one? So part of what the biggest thing when it comes to expenses is knowledge, right? It's really having those conversations that Sometimes they're difficult conversations, not only with the people that you want to take care of, but I, I've had a couple of difficult conversations with my financial advisor where he says to me, hey, man, this is your, your last six months spending picture. And I'll be like, oh, shit, let me reel it in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and and I and I feel like I'm one of the the better guys in terms of spending, and I'm I'm still like, whoa, whoa okay, all right, let's back it up for a second. So I get what you're saying. I mean, and, and to get back to your point about just the people in your inner circle, I think. I think learning to say no is important. There is like a sense of obligation for anyone, for anyone. I don't care what your background is and what your profession is, but for anyone who who earns a significant income, there's a sense of obligation and, and, a, and a want and a desire to take care of the people that are important to you, whether it's your family, the, the, the people you, you I mean, grew up. Yeah. care for you when you were growing up. And, uh, and yeah. you know, so it's not just like, you know, a, right. a lot of people call it entourage. And I, it always offends me because I was like, you know, uh, these are, in many cases, some of these guys, They've taken care of that athlete all their lives. You know, when their family and friend and, and closest friends wasn't around, these people were there taking care of them. So you have to understand it as though that these people are their family. So if you just, like, dismiss right. it as the entourage, then you miss, you know, you know, the importance of these people into that athlete's life. So if you, you have to treat it as it is. You have to treat it as their family of choice. And, uh, and and if you look at it that way, then you will understand it a little bit better than being dismissive. Well, where this you know this entourage taking advantage of this athlete? Well, this athlete doesn't view it that way. He view these people right. as his extended family, for better or for worse. Um, right. But then you have you can have an honest conversation about that. So I think you, you're right. Is that those are some of the most uncomfortable conversation. And I can say to you, having gone through that those conversation, is that. Uh, my advice for most athletes is to do it before you even get a cent. You know, to do it right. before the right. money gets into the bank because you can set the boundaries. I remember those are some boundaries of and expectations. Yeah, exactly right. Because yeah. you know, you're going to tell your mom, "This is what I'm going to give you." You're going to make uh, expectation to your sisters, uh, brothers. I'm going to send you to college. That's all you're going to get. You know, I'm going to help you to get a degree i'm going to help you to get a trade but that's my only responsibility to you and there'll be nothing beyond that if you have those conversations as harshly as you can early it does set the kind of the benchmark or the groundwork for everything that will follow after that you did something fairly interesting and i think is extremely brilliant i'm not going to butcher the quote but there's the old quote about fishes and teaching someone how to fish i'm not even going to try to to say it but you know, you essentially, instead of just giving money to certain family members, you actually paid for their education. And I guess your goal was to make them independent of you. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so think of it this way, right? Is that if you have, if we all say from the onset that the, uh, the life expectancy of an athlete is just about 4.7 years, less than five, then we're basically saying if you take care of your family, uh, you know, giving them jobs as part of your entourage, then you're basically giving them a job that has a lifespan of five years. <laughs> so my thing was is that if you want to empower the next generation, the idea is, is not to enslave them to you, but it's to give them the independence to find a true purpose and a true calling. And in so doing, that they would enable themselves to figure out their own destiny and their own path. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I don't think I was as clear about that initially, but it's really about just having that conversation and teaching them how to fish for themselves and teaching them how to find their own, their own destiny and their own path towards their own success and, and defining success in their own right. Because you also have to remember, 
remember is that that, that person, um, your family member, your friends, they're never going to be uh, have access to that kind of money in that shorter period of time. So you got to teach them a tangible uh, skill, trade, education, so that they can figure out their own path. I mean, we are athletes, and we're trying to figure out what's the next path. But these people and the people in your life that you care about, you have to make sure that you give them the skills uh, to, to be successful in their own right. I love that word, empowering. I think that's a good way to look at things. Here's the quote, by the way. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. I had to look that up. <laughs> My computer's in front of me. It's apparently a Chinese proverb. All right, so I want to transition now into uh, what's going on in your life right now. And you've been retired now for a few years. Uh, you worked for the Magic in their front office for a couple years and you've done some broadcasting. I know you have your master's degree right now. Um, I believe you're considering getting your MBA. I'm interested because of all the guys I've played with, there's a few of them, but you're one of them for sure, that I'm, I'm like, oh, that guy's going to be fine post-career. He's going to be fine. You know, He'll find something to do and blah, blah, blah. But I think if, if I'm not mistaken, it's been more of a challenge than you probably realized. It has been a very difficult challenge, and, I, and the challenge, I think, mostly is if you care too much about your profession and you want to stay in your profession, that's where the difficulty uh, comes, right? It comes from, is that if I want to go outside of my profession, I think I'll be all right, but there is something about, you know, being a keen and being friends with and being close to these people and these players that you want to help. And you want to find a way to help them. You see the problems. You see institutional barriers or structures that prevents them from really getting the help that they need. But it's a very delicate balance because uh, a lot of people are vested in not really making sure that, you know, that all of these knowledge comes out or you don't critique too severely. So uh, you have to watch, you have to be able to do the dance. And when you are unwilling to play the game, then there is a lot of barriers that finally comes up and prevent you. So I'm like, so I, and, and I, I want to say that more clearly, and I'm being vague on purpose, because I, I see... No, but I understand what you're saying. There's some politics involved, whether it's working in front office or right. within the league, agencies, financial teams. I mean, you know, everything within the structure and within the, the world. The easiest way to say this is people want a piece of athletes. They all want a piece, and they're, they're willing to do anything to protect that piece that they're getting from the athlete. And... To disrupt that cycle and to disrupt that system can be a daunting task. I, I totally get what you're saying. So talk, I think for people to better understand this, talk a little bit about the things you did with the Magic in terms of, of player development. So it wasn't as much on the court stuff, but it was, it was the stuff we're talking about, the stuff off the court. Yeah, I wanted to redefine the way that that role has been conducted. I wanted that role to be more um, off-the-court stuff and to really define that there could be so much kind of content that could be created for the athlete. You know, I wanted to look at, you know, where each athlete was in terms of schooling, how could they start thinking about their post-career, looking at the role of mental health in sports and really trying to figure out how to create a structure around that, 
looking at transition, looking at financial literacy and competencies, and really start talking about how does that athlete now bridge and take the information and the knowledge gained from one place and having that bridge where it can follow the athlete wherever they go. Because, I mean, it's like there's such inconsistency that you can be in one team where you have amazing people around you and then you go to another team and everything is left behind or you may be lucky to drop in another good situation, but there's not parity around all 30 teams. So I think it was very important for me to try to try to create you know, an exceptional um, player development program where at least there's feedback where guys could tell me that, you know, here's what's going on, here is uh, some of the challenges I have, and here's how, you know, either you've made it better, or here's how you can make it even better than it is now. So it's really having those kind of conversations. I think that's what I was most proud of is that Otis Smith, our GM, gave me a lot of range to look and critique and to really change things when they didn't work. You talked about financial literacy. Where do you think that starts with athletes? Because the, obviously the onus is on the athlete to take responsibility. We, we, we've said that now a couple of times. But should the league have better programs? Should the Players Association have better programs? Is there a responsibility with front offices and, and teams to, to look after guys and educate guys? Where does that start? What's the best way? I don't know the solution. I, I really right. don't because I've thought a lot about this and specifically the role that the Players Association has. Because I think it's one thing to offer a program in the summer, but it's an entirely different thing to be proactively educating guys in financial literacy. Well, the first thing I would say is that there has been a systematic failure of the professional athlete by universities in, in many instances. We come through a system in the United States of America and almost none of us have an idea. Most people don't have an idea of how to balance a checkbook because we no longer teach financial education all the way through the school system unless you're at a really amazing uh, prep school or some a private school. So there, there is a problem when the New York Times a few years, uh, I think it was a year ago, says that people over 50 don't have the know-it or the financial bandwidth to really take care of their lives beyond the investment in Social Security and the other stuff. We have a problem, and it's not just an athletic problem. We have a societal problem with finances. I agree with you. The debt that people have in this country is ridiculous. So there is a failure in education. So the question becomes is like, when an athlete, uh, you know, gets a million dollars, is that really the time to have a conversation about financial literacy and education? I think that the league, the union, all of them have to start thinking about going back early and catching an athlete in college. Really start having this conversation way earlier than we're doing right now. I mean, we basically are behind the eight ball. By the time a guy got into the league, that's that's too late to start having the conversation. We have to do more, yes. But we should start looking to why isn't there a department of professional sports that really try to talk about some of the experiences that athletes are going to have when they get to the next level. There's a lot of people who are not going to make it to the next level, but there's a lot of jobs in professional sports that people can start looking to if they want to you know, be a part of, 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 that, of, that, of that kind of uh, sector. So there is like, you know, every player, I think, has to start thinking about getting a personal manager. You're going to have your team. There is like jobs from media to player development. There's so many jobs that have been created in, in professional sports that pays really good money. So why isn't university 
creating departments that specifically deal with some of those job prospects. Uh, call it the Department of Professional Sports or whatever name you want to give it that really has skills that really fits people, not just the athlete, but, uh, but also people that are interested in professional sports. I think you will see a lot of interest, and I think you see athletes staying a little bit longer to get that full uh, education. And I think you will see that they're having a prospect about you know, the life they're going to um, be a part of when they get to the next level and if they get to the next level. I think we started to have the conversation a lot earlier. Parents have to be responsible and make sure that they really kind of create a culture um, where they're telling the kid that it's not just about being an athlete. It's a, what good is it to be an athlete if you can't really count the money that you're going to earn? It's about being a student athlete. We have to reclaim that word again from the, from the college ranks. I think that there's been an erosion of that. A lot of stuff in there, all really good, and I totally agree with you in that it's got to start earlier. I don't think there's really many high schools that are teaching financial literacy, and you know certainly I, we learn about biology or chemistry and can name off symbols of the periodic table, but I, hell, I, I bought a house. Well, more on this in a second, but I bought a house. You know, right after I got drafted, I didn't really comprehend the structure and the basic knowledge of a mortgage. I didn't really get it, you know, and and that's a pretty simple thing, and I didn't understand it. You're listening to The Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy for you to create your stunning website. Go to Wix.com and create your website today. It's easy and free. That's Wix.com. All right, Adonal, as I told you, every week we do a four-on-four, and we're going to get into four-on-four. We're going to have a little fun with it, okay? Oh, boy. For this week's four-on-four, we are going to be talking about our worst purchases ever (laughs) okay okay so these could be anything i mean it could be a small thing that you're like why the hell did i do that or uh like my first thing it could be a very large purchase and i'm gonna jump right in so in 2006 when i got drafted by the magic a couple weekends after i went down to orlando i looked at a bunch of houses at the time it was very easy to get a mortgage I met some lady at the from the bank. I signed like two basketballs for her, and she handed me a mortgage for $980,000. I don't even know if I put 10% down when I closed on this house, but I bought a house in Orlando for a fairly sizable amount of money, and <laughs> that was in 2006. The financial crisis happened uh, when I married my wife in 2010. We had rented the house out for a year, and, and she wanted to sell the house. And so we, we sold the house and moved into a small apartment on the other side of town. But when I went to closing, this is all public record, so I don't really have a problem. And this is really only the, the only big financial mistake I've ever made. When I went to closing to sell my house, I brought a cashier's check for $345,000. I, I was selling my house, not buying. I was selling my house. 
in addition to giving away my house, I was, and listen, I could get into the details of my interest rate and, and my monthly payment. And I tried to refinance. They wanted, I had to pay down 500 and some thousand dollars to refinance. I was like, screw it. I don't want this house anyways. So there was a reason that I did all this, but I'm actually glad I did it because the house was a headache. And, you know, fortunately I've gotten two contracts since then. So it's not the end of the world, but that was a major check. I want to say that was like the biggest, one of the biggest checks I've ever written. That was depressing. (laughs) Uh, I'm so sorry. Okay. But I'll make you feel better. So, uh, I'm from the Island. So I thought that my worst purchase has to be, I bought basically a lake ski boat to take to the Caribbean in salt water instead of like really and uh, so I, I got this boat uh, this yamaha boat and it was great right except it was really a freshwater boat it's a lake we boat, live yeah. in the caribbean and yeah it was only about 21 feet and you know i had family members that are big like me so imagine like going down to the island with all the waves and not being able to use this boat because it got literally destroyed in the, with the seawater and the seaside all down there and worse it couldn't even get over the waves because it was so small it couldn't really crest the waves in the right way and oh by the way i'm not a captain so you could imagine how that uh, went down <laughs> yeah maybe don't buy a boat if you have no boating experience especially, yeah, especially yeah. on the ocean that's that's different like maybe on a lake where there's no waves like i get that yeah. uh that's that's a tough one man that's a tough one Second worst purchase I've made when I signed my new contract in 2010, my wife and I had just gotten married and her lease expired. She had like a little Acura, two-door Acura uh, that her parents had paid for. And then, you know, we got married, her lease expired. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to go buy her a car. So I went and bought her a car. And while I was car shopping for her, I saw a Porsche Panamera Turbo and I was like, this car is awesome. And I test drove it and it was a rocket and I bought it. I had back spasms for like two months. I sold it two months later. Uh, it was a complete waste of money. <laughs> I, I bought it, or I traded it in rather for a Chevy Tahoe, which I drove that Chevy Tahoe for five and a half years. It was the old model and, and I just got the new model in September. So I'm still driving a Chevy Tahoe and I'm so happy with my Chevy Tahoe. I sit so nice and high, no back spasms. <laughs> <laughs> You were shopping for the wifey. What were you looking? <laughs> I don't know, man. I got in the spirit of things. I was like, oh, you get a car, you get a car, oh, you get a car. Get a car. <laughs> I don't get a car. Okay, my second one is I went to this uh, art dealership. I was When I travel around the world, instead of collecting stuff I wouldn't use, I collect uh, pieces of art. And I was convinced that this piece of art is the most amazing piece of art ever. And then I brought it back home, and then I opened it, and I was like, it's the ugliest piece of art I could have ever bought, except for the fact that I spent over $10,000 for this piece of art. And I have done a really good job of collecting really good pieces of art. But you have, a, you have an incredible was, art collection. You do. <laughs> this piece was not my, my best. And uh, <laughs> I was just, I have it, it's been in storage for the last like 15 years. And one day I'm hoping it will become more pretty over time. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, so you don't even have it on display. Oh no! You, you've I, never I, like. Try, have you ever tried to sell it? I'm sure if you listed it on Craigslist, you get something back. I might be able to get. I, that's actually a good idea. But I was so ashamed of it. I was hoping that it would turn into a beautiful swan or something over time. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, okay. All right. So for my for my next horrible purchase, luckily this was 
I'm done with my big like horrible purchases, the car and the house. The next two are smaller, but um, I was at a charity event. I think this was my second year and lived in this neighborhood in Windermere where the aforementioned house where I bought and uh, there was a golf course in the neighborhood. And at the charity event, there was a custom golf cart that was being auctioned off. And I went after a few drinks, the end of the night, they said there was no bidder on the, uh, on the yellow golf cart. So I decided that I should buy the yellow golf cart in the spirit of charity, except I wasn't allowed to drive it around the golf course because it was yellow and it had rims <laughs> and it also had no place to put golf clubs. It was really meant to scoot around the neighborhood and, uh, yeah, it really served no purpose whatsoever. I ended up selling it. I made some money back, or not made money, but I got money back. It wasn't like a complete waste of money, and I did get a tax write-off. But it was a very, very stupid purchase. But this was for charity, man. You got to give yourself a break. It was for the kids. Uh, it was for the kids. It was, it was for the for kids. kids. <laughs> okay, so I think my other purchase was, uh, uh, you know, coming from the islands. You're, I mean, kind of like part of the. The culture, not just the Caribbean, but I think uh, at the time, conspicuous consumption is part of our culture, right? We, when you make it, you have to show everyone that you made it. So I, I think I got a ridiculous, giant gold bracelet. I mean, it of course was, you did. I mean, it was just obnoxious, and I thought that this was a really good idea. And I remember just like saying, like, "What are you? I mean, what are you doing? Like, it's." Ugly. This is like the the ugliest thing. So I think I, I sold it, and I guess it was a good time for gold. So we we they melted and got a lot of uh, good stuff. Uh, probably got a gold ball out of it. But yeah, it was an obnoxious uh, gold bracelet. Yeah, I never got into that sort of jewelry. You may know this, and you probably do. But I do like I do like my watches. All right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, the thing with watches is, I mean, some watches I've bought, I've made money on. Some watches I get, you know, basically 100% back. There's some watches that, you know, you, you maybe buy for 2000 bucks and you sell it for 1000 whatever. I mean, <laughs> it's a small price to pay for a, an obsessive hobby. I don't regret any of my watch purchases, so I'm not going to include that for my fourth one. My fourth one was a very small purchase, but it was, it was again, another dumb purchase. And, you know, I'm looking at this list, and they're all pre-2010 or 2010 right. or before. I, I think youth may have something to do with these bad decisions. Would you agree with me? I mean, God, I was stupid. But anyways, 2010. Well, we talk about it. You know, we, we talk about it. You know, really? And I think that's yeah. the, the first liberating thing is that once you start yeah. talking about it, you realize you should just be able to laugh at yourself and move on. I know. On. I, mean, that's I know. <laughs> I have no shame. Whatever. I bought a yellow golf cart. Yeah. No big deal. All right. So, so 2010, my wife and I got married, like I said, and we sold the house. We moved into this apartment. It was a very small two-bedroom apartment. It was, it was about 1,100 square feet, and we decided that we wanted to get a dog. Now, I'm, I wouldn't describe myself as an animal person, nor would I describe my wife as an animal person, but we thought it would be a good idea to get a dog. So we did some research, and we settled on getting an Alaskan Klikai, which is essentially a, a miniature husky. So we had this dog shipped across the country from California to Orlando. We picked it up at the airport. I believe it flew continental through Houston, so it made a little changeover. The dog was terrified when we got it. We took it home. Within three days, it had bit me twice on my shooting hand. I still have a small scar uh, 
on my shooting hand. So in the interest of my career, I said, you know what? Let's send the dog back. So we okay. put it on a plane back to California. We didn't get our money back. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't the end of the world. But uh, as far as I know, the dog was very happy to go back to its owner. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, Asher. The is- dog's name was Asher. <laughs> Asher. <laughs> okay. A- uh, so I think I was uh, with Farouk. And, uh, and then I was like, he had convinced me to buy this jacket, which is like, it's worse than what Shock wore the All-Star game. It was, <laughs> it's like a fur jacket and stuff like that. Like, and I remember just buying it like, oh yeah, I'm going to look good. I remember coming home with this leather fur and I was like, I am never going to wear this jacket. What the heck were you thinking? Like, you cannot wear I can't this. even see you in a fur jacket. <laughs> I don't even want to see you. You look like a giant, like a giant bear, like a big bear. This this jacket stayed in my closet probably for the last ten years. I finally give it to, like, give it away for charity the other day. I'm like, you know, hopefully somebody will make good use of it because I'm never going to wear that. But I don't. That was kind of one of those impulse buy because it was probably in your hotel room. Damn you, Farouk. These are all great things. Just to be clear, like we're having some fun with this. And I think both of us can recognize that, you know, we made bad decisions. All right. We made bad decisions. And uh, I think both of us value money. I know I do. I value money. And it seems like every year that goes by, I value the actual dollar more and more, especially now that I have kids. And you always, I mean, you look, you, you buy used cars, Adonal, like you're a frugal person. Um, we all make financial mistakes it, and it's, it's relative. And again, because many of us aren't, you know, educated from an early age, we, we have no idea and we have a lot of free time. So these things happen to defend. I'm going to defend you and myself a little bit. Like these were all dumb mistakes and yes, they were a waste of money, but Adonal, like you have a foundation. I've had a foundation you give money to charity. I give money to charity. Like we both get it. We we had some fun there, but right. I think we and both I think part get of it. what we were saying is that you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to make perfect. Decisions no one's going to be per- right. Life, no one's right? going to be perfect. Yeah. But part of what we have to do, and I think this is part of the conversation I wanted to start with my book, which is we need to start talking about the silly things that we exactly. do, and it's not. It shouldn't be a condemnation of a player when, to no fault of his own, but everything to do with him that he makes decisions that he didn't have the expertise to make and people put these guys in situations and ask them to make decisions when they don't have the bandwidth and i think what we're saying is that we all make mistakes the question is you need to try to minimize the big mistakes if you can minimize the big mistakes and learn from the small ones hopefully that will inform your experience so that as you grow older, hopefully you make less bad decisions. And I, right. I think that's what we're trying to get at. Is how do we have that frank conversation that we athletes are not afraid to say, you know what, I made some big mistakes. You know what, I bought a car that, you know, I think one of the, the guys in my butt, it was Mark Jack, he's like, I bought a car that couldn't even hold uh, my cup of coffee, that it broke uh, with his Rolls Royce, you know. And, right. 
I mean, having those conversations, is, it would allow other people to have those conversations. And I think that's what we're trying to do is that we have to make fun of ourselves because that's I'm definitely making fun of myself. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm definitely making fun of myself. I also think, too, like I recognize how fortunate I am to play basketball for a living. You, you know, you did it for 13 years. This is my 10th year. You know, we're definitely not the norm. We've exceeded the average contract and so yes we made financial mistakes when we were younger and both of us are we're fortunate that we got further along in our career and and earned more income and i think if you talk to anyone in their 20s uh whether you make a million dollars a year a hundred thousand dollars a year twenty thousand dollars a year whatever it may be like most of us did make financial mistakes and i don't want to say it's all relative but certainly it happens to everyone Indeed, you couldn't have said, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, Donald, I really appreciate all this time. You know, maybe next time when you come on, we can talk about private equity trends and structured <laughs> notes. Um, <laughs> no, we're not going to bore people. Sweet, <laughs> uh, no, we're not going to bore people. But this has been a fascinating conversation. And also, man, it's always good to talk to you. I always enjoy catching up with you. Hopefully, I'll, I'll see you sometime during the playoffs up in the Bay Area and can't thank you enough for all the time you've given us today. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. I, I really think it's an important conversation to have, and, uh, and we're having it. So uh, thank right. you for that. Sounds good. Thanks, Donald. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. Please tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments. And just a reminder, my podcast, as well as all the Vertical Podcasts, are now available on Spotify. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, SeatGeek, Mac Weldon, and Wix.com. Until next week, later. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.